Welcome back. This is Daily Buddhism Audio Show number 54. My name is Brian Schell, and I'm your host for the show. You can find the text as well as all links mentioned in this program and all past episodes on the website at www.dailybuddhism.com. Some announcements. As I mentioned last time, issue number 27 of the Weekly Buddhism PDF magazine was the final weekly issue. Starting in May, the new version will be known as the Monthly Buddhism PDF magazine. The May issue of the all-new Monthly Buddhism PDF magazine will be available around the 1st of May and will include all postings and comments from the Daily Buddhism website during the month of April, as well as a few special items. It'll be an easy and attractive way to have everything in one convenient package. In the meantime, I've set up an option on the website to purchase the entire set of the weekly Buddhism past issues. That's all 27 issues in one easy purchase. Check out www.weeklybuddhism.com And want to take a moment to mention a new sponsor, eHealth Insurance. Have you recently lost your health insurance or are looking for ways to save on your insurance? We all know how important health insurance can be, but how do you know where to start looking? Check out eHealth Insurance for free comparison quotes. Just enter your zip code and a few simple lifestyle questions, and they'll show you actual rates from your region. It's pretty neat. Check them out at www.dailybuddhism.com slash eHealth. E-H-E-A-L-T-H. And we covered some really good topics in this week's free Daily Buddhism email newsletter. And we'll cover them shortly in this week's episode, too. But of all the stuff we do on the Daily Buddhism, I like answering your questions the most. So send in yours by email to brian at dailybuddhism.com or call them in on voicemail at 937-660-4949. Now, seriously, you've got questions, so don't wait to share them. And now, let's get on with this week's show. And we started off this week with a reader question. And this one's a little bit different, since the question is actually longer than the answer. But I thought it would be good to put the whole thing in here, as there's quite a lot of good information included. And a reader wrote in, It came up in a conversation that the majority of religions are based on a reward system. By this, I mean if we perform good will towards man, we'll be granted eternal happiness. For those that falter throughout life, continuously acting upon transgressions, they're sent back on the continuous wheel of life known as rebirth, or sent to the flames of hell. Muslims follow the Koran which provides vivid description of both heaven and hell. Heaven is viewed upon as worldly delights, whereas torments of hell are explained in lurid detail. On Judgment Day, Allah will rise and determine one's destiny. Also being described as passing over hell on a narrow bridge in order to enter paradise or heaven. Those who fall, weighted by their bad deeds, will remain in hell forever. Hinduism states that in order to be freed from the endless rounds of rebirth, death, and rebirth, 
one must follow a life completely devoted to the Brahman. Their afterlives continue in many forms, and in many different worlds, depending on how one lived his or her life. Good for good, bad for bad, etc. In fact, neither life nor afterlife are permanent, unless the soul is liberated. Liberation is defined as freedom from the individual soul from the cycle of births and deaths, from the sense of duality and separation, and union with Brahman, the Supreme Soul. In the Jewish religion, they await the coming of the Messiah, where he will hand out the eternal judgment and rewards to all. One major belief in Judaism is that the entire Jewish race and the whole of creation will be judged, as opposed to individual men. Again, it comes down to good for the good, bad for the bad, etc. Christianity is another strong representation of this view. Those that follow God, abiding by his will, will be rewarded upon death with eternal happiness and into the gates of heaven. Those that turn their face from God, performing a life of everlasting sin, will be doomed to the gates of hell. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8 And finally with Buddhism. The doctrine is summed up in the Four Noble Truths. Life is suffering. The origin of suffering is attachment. The cessation of suffering is attainable. And the path to the cessation of suffering, the way down that path, is known as the Noble Eightfold Path. As well as the Four Noble Truths, we have to factor in karma. In Buddhism, from what I've learned, it's basically the result of our own past actions and our own present doings. In other words, we are responsible for our own happiness and misery, the architects of our own fate. And finally, my question. Why is it that religions have to be so black and white regarding eternal happiness? Shouldn't religion and spirituality be celebrated as love? If God is love, or the God of your understanding, then why would such a world be created in which suffering and pain is inevitable? thus creating opportunities and excuses for sin. Creating anger and hatred, revenge and spite, good and evil. Shouldn't everyone be granted eternal happiness? Not forced into the cycle of rebirth in the sense of try and try again. Shouldn't all men and women be accepted for who they are, and not judged by their actions? which, by the way, are all the result of one's family life and how their father treated their mother, grandfather to grandmother, so on and so forth. Our minds, exploited by the information and beliefs of our elders. We are all products of society's influence, generation after generation, and are a direct result of our environment. Love should be rewarded with love, as should pain, suffering, anger, hatred, and the like. What is your take on all of this from a Buddhist standpoint? Okay, and my answer. First of all, I want to point out that there are some minor flaws in this person's explanation of some of those religions. But I'm not going to get into that right now. First of all, I'm going to turn off my Buddhist teacher mode for this one and put on my old comparative religions hat for this one to look at it from the outside. 
This answer has a lot to it, so if I offend anyone, I apologize in advance. Take issue with it in the comment section if you want, or better yet, add your own ideas. Whether or not there is a God behind any of it, all religions seek to explain the world around us and also answer the big questions, such as what happens when we die. How they answer those questions lies partially in the cultures and regions from which they came. Those in the East often involve reincarnation, for example, while those in the West involve some higher power that sits in judgment. The last line of your own question, Love should be rewarded with love, as should pain, suffering, anger, hatred, and the like, explains the rest. Humans have an innate need for fairness and justice. If I spend my life helping others, being generous and compassionate, doing good deeds, etc., and my neighbor is a greedy, cheating liar, then what's fair about that? The afterlife, in most religions, is there to balance the scales. That nasty old neighbor will get what's coming to him later, when I'm enjoying my rewards. Pain should be rewarded with pain, hatred with hatred, and so forth. You reap what you sow, or karma. It's all a form of eternal justice to make up for the inequities of this life. The source of the idea that God is love is 1 John 4.8 from the Bible. Yet beyond that one line, there really isn't much evidence of that. The line has been blown way out of proportion, in my opinion. According to everything else in the Bible, God is a person, or being, with desires, plans, and wishes of his own. He's not a generic entity such as love. You asked, should religions and spirituality be interpreted as love? Why? Religions are there to explain the world, and if people in a certain area don't see love as the highest ideal, then that's not going to be reflected in their religion. Much of your question is also based around an old theological trap, or question, called the problem of evil. You may have heard it before, but I'm going to explain it here again. It's from originally from Christian theology, but it applies to Islam and most other God-centric religions. First, God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Okay. Two, God is perfectly good, wanting only the best for us. Okay. Three, there is evil and suffering in the world. Well, turn on the news. That's easy to prove. So do each of these three statements look true to you? No, they should. But taken as a whole, they contradict each other. If God is good, and wants the best for us, then how can evil exist? Either God cannot defeat evil, or he won't for some reason. If he can't, then the first rule is wrong. He's not all-knowing or all-powerful. If he will not, then number two is wrong. He's not perfectly good, or he doesn't want only the best from us. There have been people trying to explain this contradiction for a thousand years, and there are many, many possible ways around it, but the problem remains. Now, Buddhism, as in many other things, is a bit different from all this. Whether or not you believe in the more religious flavors of Buddhism, 
they all place an emphasis on this world. You're supposed to do your best to follow Buddha's path now, not after death. By doing so, we build a better world right here. This is one reason Buddhism is so vague on nirvana or heaven. No one knows what it really is, and we're not that attached to getting there, if you think of it as a place at all. It's not the goal that really matters. It's the life and the practice that matter. Right now. Okay, this next question and the previous one are very similar, even down to some of the wording, but there's enough difference between them that I thought it would be good to address them separately. Question. I've been following your podcast, daily emails, and website for a while now, and I was reading about last week's Jehovah Witness question. I then had a look at the answers under the comments section, and generally it set me off wondering. There seemed to be much talk about belief, and it sounded a little bit like, my belief is better than your belief. But surely this is not the point of Buddhism. It's about the path, the journey, as the old hippies would say, not the goal itself. Isn't that the major difference between most religions and Buddhism? Most seem to have some kind of reward system. Be good, meek, steadfast, and you'll go to heaven. Whereas in Buddhism, the aim is about the here and now. It's about seeing reality clearly and unencumbered by our filters. I know there are things about nirvana, a release from the wheel, a better reincarnation. But these are remnants of the Hindu influence in Buddhism. I don't think the Buddha actually taught any of that. Okay, and my answer... I covered the answer to the first half of your question in the previous post, so I'm going to skip some of that and focus only on the last part of your question this time. I don't know if you can just throw out everything that came from Hinduism just because Buddha didn't specifically teach it. It was always there in the background of his mind, even if he didn't overtly support it. I know there were some parts with which he disagreed, but we can't really know today what parts he silently supported. It's essentially the same as the situation with Christians and Jews. Jesus was a Jew, and he taught in the synagogue. He had some radical ideas, yes, but it was still basically Judaism. Only later did people start looking at his teachings as a whole new thing. As time passed, what Jesus was said to have taught grew further and further away from basic Judaism. And even today, there's a lot of debate about which parts of the Jewish Bible, or Old Testament, are supposed to be kept by Christians or thrown out. There seems to be a lot of picking and choosing going on, all with only a very shaky scriptural support. And I suspect it's about the same with Buddhism. As time passes, people are steering Buddhism further and further away from Hinduism. Now, I'm not saying that this is a good or a bad thing, as religions change and adapt all the time. I personally steer or adapt Buddhism into a more westernized framework every day with every article I write. Obviously, I don't see that as wrong. But returning to your point, we cannot really know Buddha's thoughts pertaining to Hinduism. 
There are some writings that say he disagreed with certain parts of Hindu practices, but there's no way to know who wrote them or when. We pretty much have to take the words reported to us today as Buddha's words, whether or not he actually said them. But it doesn't really matter. I don't care what Buddha said or didn't say, and neither should you. One thing that he said, or at least was claimed to have said, was, Do not believe in anything simply because you have heard it. Do not believe in anything simply because it is spoken and rumored by many. Do not believe in anything simply because it is found written in your books. Do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teachers and elders. Do not believe in traditions because they have been handed down for many generations. But, after observation and analysis, when you find that anything agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. Did he really say that? I don't know, I wasn't there. But it sounds true. It seems honest. It feels right. I think I'll keep it. And then it was time for our weekly koan. This one is called A Smile in His Lifetime. Mokugen was never known to smile until his last day on earth. When his time came to pass away, he said to his faithful ones, You have studied under me for more than ten years. Show me your real interpretation of Zen. Whoever expresses this most clearly shall be my successor, and receive my robe and my bowl. Everyone watched Mokugen's severe face, but no one answered. Enko, a disciple who had been with his teacher for a long time, moved near the bedside. He pushed forward the medicine cup a few inches. That was his answer to the command. The teacher's face became even more severe. Is that all you understand? he asked. Enko reached out and moved the cup back again. A beautiful smile broke over the features of Mokugen. You rascal, he told Enko. You worked with me ten years and have not seen my whole body. Take the robe and bowl. They belong to you. And next up, another book review. This time I read The Sayings of Layman Pang, a Zen classic of China. Translated by James Green, published by Shambhala Publications, 2009, 144 pages. And there is a link in the show notes to order from Amazon. When the mind is at peace, the world too is at peace. Layman Pang. Layman Pang was a Chan or Zen Buddhist during the Tang Dynasty. He serves as an exemplary figure to those Buddhists practicing outside of monasticism. He studied and practiced Buddhism with his whole family, and from his stories about them and his writings came the most famous of the Buddhist sayings. 
in an age where it was common for those spiritually minded individuals to give up their possessions and families and go off to live in a monastery, old Mr. Pang chose not to take that route. Instead, he and his family made a living selling baskets and studying with many traveling masters throughout the years. This book is a collection of nearly 60 stories of Mr. Pang and his family and his dialogues with these masters. In these discussions, sometimes the master would teach layman Pang something, but just as often, the reverse would happen. Most of the stories are fairly cryptic to the modern reader and are essentially koans. One reads the story and asks, what just went on there? There are extensive footnotes after each story, but rather than explain the meaning, most of the footnotes explain more about the characters or put the story in some kind of context. It's usually up to the reader to find the meaning. There's a lot of introductory material in this book before the stories actually start, and much of this introduction is valuable in itself. It explains the significance of being a layman compared to being a monk, and why Mr. Pang is looked at as a traditional hero. It gives a bit of history about the various masters and monks mentioned in the stories, and what they are best known for. The book is short, at 144 pages, with largish type and lots of white space. You could read it in an evening if you wanted to make the attempt. But, as with most books of this type, it would probably be better to read one or two of the single, page-long stories per day and give them time to make sense. If you enjoy koans, pick this book up. It's got the usual koan-style stories in it, but there's enough help in the footnotes to understand what is really going on. Even if you don't enjoy the riddle aspect of koans, Layman Pang's thoughtful, mysterious and funny insights are worth taking a look. And finally, another reader comment. This reader wrote in in response to the first posting this week, the one where the, a, a different reader wrote in saying, Not judged by our actions, which, by the way, are all a result of one's family life, and how their father treated their mother, grandfather to grandmother, so on and so forth, our minds exploited by the information and beliefs of our elders. We are all products of society's influence generation after generation, and are a direct result of our environment. Well, this reader didn't care for that, and he wrote in. I remember years ago, I was getting counseling from a very wise man, and explained to him how when I returned to my hometown after a couple years away, I felt right back into my old patterns of life, which included many unhealthy choices. I explained it to him this way. Have you ever seen those chickens at fairs that do a trick or something? Like the kind that are in a small cage with a light bulb and a piano. When I was growing up, there used to be one near our house at a small amusement park. You put a quarter in the slot below the cage and the light bulb in the cage would turn on. The chicken would see the light and walk over to the piano. The chicken would peck out four or five notes on the piano, and food would be dispensed as a reward. You see, I feel like that chicken when I came home. When the light goes on, I play the piano. And my wise counsel replied, You have forgotten one important point. You are not a chicken. 
and my response. Now that is a great story. It's like Pavlov's Koan or something. <laughs> but this note made me think. We often hear about the nature versus nurture argument, and I often wonder just how much of the world's problems are due to genetics. It seems that on the news, more and more bad things are being blamed on genetics. Everything from diseases and obesity to criminal actions. Now, obviously, whether you're tall or short, black or white, blue-eyed or brown-eyed, is a matter of genetics. No one has any control over that stuff. But is it really reasonable to blame things like overeating and drug abuse on genetics? How much behaviorally can we really blame on genetics rather than upbringing? And even more importantly, personal choice. Now, I can't argue against there being a genetic factor that can push people in certain directions. Perhaps genetics is the cause of someone who has a tendency to overeat, or even make them more likely to become addicted to something. However, as the reader who wrote the letter above stated, we're not chickens. We do have a choice in our actions. Buddhism, more than any other religion or philosophy, emphasizes personal responsibility. We talked about this earlier in the week with our, when we compared it to other religions. You make the choices. You control your life. This is the main repercussion of the existence of karma. You are the one ultimately responsible for yourself, bad genes or otherwise. Another reader sent in an excellent slideshow, which emphasizes this point perfectly. Sometimes it is possible to go against one's own inner nature and behave on a higher level. Follow the link in the show notes to the slideshow and enjoy the pictures of the Temple of the Tigers. And that's all I have for you this week. The Daily Buddhism runs primarily from your donations, and it's easy to help out. Just go to www.dailybuddhism.com donate and click on any of the options there. You can donate as little as a dollar or as much as you want. If you choose the recurring $5 a month donation level, you'll get a free subscription to the monthly Buddhism PDF magazine. But of course, anything you send is appreciated and helpful. Keep in mind that the Daily Buddhism daily email newsletter is completely free, no strings attached. All you need to do is go to the site and sign up. If you have a question on any Buddhism-related topic, send in your questions by email to brian at dailybuddhism.com or phone them in anytime on our voicemail line, 937-660-4949. Or post your ideas, comments, or suggestions in the comments section of any individual blog post. And I will see you next week. <music>